Glory Days. It's one of the many hits on Bruce Springsteen's iconic 1984 album, Born in the USA. How many of you remember that song? Yeah, I'm getting you some whoops even too. Yeah, it opens like this if you're unfamiliar with it. I had a friend who was a big baseball player back in high school. He could throw that speedball by you, make you look like a fool. Saw him the other night at the roadside bar. I was walking in. He was walking out. We went back inside, sat down, had a few drinks. But all he kept talking about was glory days. Well, they'll pass you by, glory days. In the wink of a young girl's eye, glory days, glory days. Yeah, some of you were tempted to even sing in. And I wouldn't have minded. I just can't do it. So I had to refrain. But yeah, that song, if you're familiar with it, that song recounts a man who sort of ruefully looks back at all that once was. He fondly reminisces, trying to recapture some of the magic, right? some of the glory of those days that have now sort of long since passed in his life. And that song strikes a chord with us because we know what it's like to look longingly back to the past. If we could just wind back the clock, right? When life was simpler, perhaps, when it was easier, safer, cheaper, less complicated, less chaotic, however you want to fill in the blanks. Friend, I wonder if you ever feel that way, that longing for the past. You know, we live in a world where war, as Kevin just prayed, has returned to Europe, where inflation is running at near 50-year highs, where government deficits are spiraling out of control, and society is really tearing itself apart over things that used to be simple. Like, what do we teach kids who are kindergarten through third grade? It can be easy to be nostalgic for the past. And I wonder if you feel that at all, some nostalgia for the past. Maybe for your own glory days of the past. Maybe the glory days of this church or ours as a society, maybe you felt they've all passed you and us by. Well, friends, it's questions like this that actually bring us right, I think, this morning into our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So let me invite you to turn there now. Uh, you, if you are using one of the Bibles we provide in the seatbacks before you, you can find it on page 965. Page 965. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18. Now, if you're just joining us, Paul visited the city of Corinth in about AD 50 or 51, his second missionary journey. He spent a good 18 plus months there preaching the gospel. He planted a church. Things were going on the whole well. He leaves and it all goes south. And part of what we've seen as we've been walking through this book is that there are some self-appointed leaders who have propped themselves up in the life of the church and they are publicly undermining Paul and his ministry to that congregation. And part of what we saw last week is it seems these individuals are demanding letters of recommendation. Right? Paul's got to establish his credentials all over again. And Paul's like, listen, letters of recommendation, Corinthians, you are my living letter. I don't need pieces of paper. I got people. I have you, Paul says. Those are his credentials. But they're also questioning his own competency as a minister. It appears some of them may have styled themselves after the ministry of Moses. 
You know, one of the tensions in the early Christian church, particularly amongst some of the Jews who became Christians, were why weren't more Jews believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus? And it's possible that some of Paul's detractors, some of whom we know were Jewish from chapter 11, verse 22, maybe they were disillusioned by the gospel's apparent lack of success amongst their own people. And so maybe these Jews sought to make the message more palatable. Maybe they sought to make in some way the religion more friendly to their Jewish skeptics. Maybe they wanted to even recover some of those glory days gone by, right? Those glory days of Moses, right? Give me some of that old time religion. Maybe that's what they were arguing for. Well, friends, what's Paul going to have to say to these folks? We pick up chapter three, verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Well, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome that was being brought to an end, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this section naturally breaks down really into two parts, two components. you got verses 7 to 11, and then you have verses 12 to 18. I trust most of your English Bibles reflect that breakdown. And in verses 7 to 11, what Paul's doing is he's really giving us an interpretation of Exodus 32 to 34, which uh, was read earlier by Vicki in the service to us. Right, Paul's going to compare the, she read at least the latter part of chapter 34, that is. And Paul's going to compare there in those chapters, and, and really, particularly what Vicki read, how the glory of the old covenant Mosaic law, well, how that glory has been surpassed by the new glory of the Spirit in the new covenant. And so for all of those who are feeling nostalgic about those times of Moses, who longed perhaps for those glory days gone by, Paul is saying to them, hey, these are the glory days. We are living in the glory days, Paul says. I don't know if you noticed all of the occurrences of that word glory. Some 13 different times just in our verses, the majority of which are condensed right there in verses 7 through 11, highlighting the the glory days Paul sees that we're living in. And then Paul's going to shift in verse 12. So if verses 7 to 11 are really the interpretation of what was happening in there back in Exodus, verses 12 to 18 
they are the application, right? What, what are the implications of these things? And the dominant image in 12 to 18 is that image of a veil, right? So given that we're living in these glory days, Paul says, therefore, what do we have to do? Well, verse 12, he's going to say, you got to behave boldly, right? God lifts the veil. But then second, you need to be transformed gloriously because we no longer need a veil. And so that just right there is going to serve as our basic outline. The, the interpretation, verses 7 to 12 Right, these are the glory days, Paul says. These are the glory days. That's going to be our first point. And then secondly, the application of that principle. And there's going to be two points of application. Therefore, behave boldly and be transformed gloriously. All right, so let's first think about the interpretation, verses 7 to 12, where Paul says, right, these are the glory days. That's what he's saying. These are the glory days. And in these verses, Paul really in all of this, Paul's lifting some pretty serious theological heavyweight. He's doing a lot of work here. And he's going back to Exodus 32 to 34, which would have been great to read all three chapters. It would have made for a bit of a longer service, though. And so just as a bit of a summary, if you're unfamiliar, right, God has delivered in Exodus his people out of Egyptian bondage and slavery. And even if you don't know the Bible, you know Disney, so you kind of know the story. All right, so he's taken Israel to be his bride, taken them there at Mount Sinai, and in chapters 20 through 23, we've got the wedding sermon. It's built much like a wedding ceremony. There's the sermon, and then there's the vows, and there's a great banquet in chapter 24, but then the unthinkable happens in chapter 32, right? There with Israel on her honeymoon with God, right on that honeymoon, Israel commits adultery, right, establishing and fashioning that golden calf. And so Moses throws down those Ten Commandments in disgust and breaks them. And just like that, that's an indication the marriage is over. And in chapter 33 of Exodus, you have the divorce proceedings. Where God's going to say to Moses, you're to go to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. So if you know Exodus 33, God's going to have to take, or rather Moses is going to have to take the tent of meeting outside the place of the people. Basically, God has to move out, right? He can no longer be in his people's presence. God has to move out. And Moses is then left to intercede for Israel. And God, in chapter 34, he does the unthinkable, and he takes Israel back, and he weds Israel again. And nobody, we see there, nobody loves like God loves. Well, in chapter 34, at the end, we see how new stone tablets are made and their new marriage vows are being renewed. And toward the very end of the chapter, which was read by Vicki, we read about the shining face of Moses when he comes down once again with two tablets. And just as an aside, there were two tablets not because they couldn't fit all the Ten Commandments on one, but because... In a covenant, each party has a copy. So one tablet would have all ten of the commandments, and they would be given to Israel, and then God would have his. As a reminder of the covenant they've made to one another. And Moses comes down, and his face is shining as he comes down off Mount Sinai. And Aaron, we read in chapter 34, And all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So then what do we read in Exodus 34? God is going to have to put, a, a Mos, a, rather Moses is going to have to put a veil over his face. Moses does. And he's had to do that in order to shield Israel from the glory of the Lord. And that veil, when Moses does that, that's not Moses being modest. 
No, that was for Israel's protection. That veil was there to protect Israel from God's glory lest they perish. That was its purpose. And that's all the critical backdrop. You've got to have that if you're going to understand verses 7 to 11. And so as we get into verses 7 to 11 of, of 2 Corinthians 3, what's astounding with all that in mind is that Paul is then going to refer to this Mosaic law with all of its glory and Moses' shining face. And he's going to refer to these Ten Commandments carved in stone, verse 7, as a ministry of death. A ministry of death. Astounding because the Jews saw the law as a path to life. So Paul's statement right there was at a minimum provocative, if not outright offensive to most Israelites. And, and we thought a little bit about the law last week. And just as a reminder, the, the reason it was a ministry of death, Paul will later say condemnation there in verse 9. It's not because there was a problem or a fault with the law itself. It's with the people. Right? The people, as God says to Moses, what are they? They're stiff-necked. They're stiff-necked people, as in they're stubborn people. You know, there are times, I don't know if this happens to you at all, there are times where my neck starts to, to lock up. And it tends to happen slowly, and it tends to happen when I do lots of stupid things. You know, I lift things I shouldn't, I put things over my head. Uh, maybe I don't rest like I should, I don't stretch like I should. Uh, it could be any number of things, and it tightens up, and it starts to lock up. And you just, usually I notice it at the wrong time. When I'm on my motorcycle, and I go to look left, and I'm like, I can't turn my head. Well, that's a bit like what God is saying Israel is like. The people of Israel, in their sin, as in, in their behavior, in their sinful behavior, what have they done? They have stiffened their necks. In fact, they've made their necks so stiff that those necks, they don't turn at all. It's like all the vertebrae there are just fused together. They will not turn. They have stiffened them so greatly. And that's why Moses says the law is like a ministry of death or of condemnation. Because yes, the law, what does it do? It reveals God's righteousness. It does that. It does absolutely, even as we prayed earlier, as Mike did, it exposes our sinfulness it should leave us longingly looking for forgiveness. But as we thought about last week, it doesn't have the power the law does to change us. Right? It can prescribe obedience, but it offers no power to obey. Which is why Moses comes down from the mountain, verse 7, and the Israelites could not gaze at his face because of its glory. So, you know, in the same way the moon, the moon is no source of light. But the moon can reflect the sun's light. Well, much the same way, Moses' own face reflected the glory of God himself. And friends, isn't that remarkable? That God is so glorious that even the reflection on Moses' face was too much for the people. It was too great for them to handle. Friends, it speaks to and reminds us again of how other God is from us. You know, we like to shrink God down to size, to something we understand, something manageable to us. But friends, God, the God of the scriptures, he is not like us. He's in fact entirely unlike us. He is beyond us and his glory is piercing and it's blinding. You see, God just isn't a better version of us. He's not some superhero type of us. He is, as I said, unlike us, categorically so. He is eternal. 
He is immortal. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent, as in he can do all, accomplish all. He never changes. The God of the scriptures never lies. He's not bound like us to space and time. He never worries. He never needs a nap. He is never tired, never uncertain, never perplexed. He never has to Google anything. He's dependent on nothing and no one, not food, not sleep, not us. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he lacked anything, needed something. He is, as we read, fully sufficient in himself. And all this speaks to God's remarkable transcendence. You know, we like to think about his, his imminence, how he's become like us in his son, Jesus Christ. And we get that. What we struggle with is his transcendence, his otherness. And it was so other. His glory was so piercing that Israel had to cower before Moses lest that glory consume them. And that, Paul says, is the glory, the great glory of the old covenant. But notice Paul gives in 7 to 11 these three if-then statements. That's how these verses are structured, right? If, verse 7, the ministry of death had glory. And we've already seen what a tremendous glory it was. If that had death, verse 7, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Second one, verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Verse 11, for if, there's our third one, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, right, then how much more will what is permanent have glory? So see what Paul's doing in all of that. He's comparing the tremendous glory of what was with Moses under the old covenant with the greater glory of the spirits and the new covenant. You know, my wife's car, she's got a newer car. It has those obnoxious headlights. You know, those like xenon headlights, whatever those things are, that at night, like you just, you pass by, you have to close your eyes, like pluck them out or something. It, they're blinding. I don't know why they're not illegal. But friends, those lights, right, you turn them on in the midday, you don't even notice them. They're not even, you're not even aware of them. And Paul's saying, listen, that's just the way it is with the old covenant and Moses. The glory under that old covenant was overshadowed by the tremendous glory of the spirit under the new covenant. It's of a category wholly different. And so just as the old covenant, Paul says, was chiseled into dead stone, verse 7, so the new is written upon what regenerated hearts, verse 8. Just as the old covenant brought condemnation in our sins, so the new covenant will bring righteousness because, of course, Jesus' righteousness, verse 9. Just as the old covenant was temporal and passing, so the new covenant is perpetual and eternal, verse 11. Paul's saying again, like, we are living in the glory days. That's his argument. So to try and turn the clock backwards, right? To be nostalgic maybe for those days of Moses. To seek to return to those days like some may have there in Corinth. Right? That's not progress, Paul says. That's regress. That's going backwards. You know, friends, even our own calendars reflect this. You know, we divide history into two eras. And that's it. So every time we write a letter 
draft a document, sign a contract. We testify to those two eras. Whether or not you call them, you know, B.C. or A.D. or B.C.E. or C.E., whatever language you want to use, it's still the same. Either way, we're acknowledging that history's dividing line was not some great war. It's not an invention. It's not some innovation. It's not even the rise of a particular nation. But history's great dividing line is all about a person. It's about a person. All of history hinges on a single person. Paul says it's the person of Jesus Christ. He marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. And Paul's saying it would be foolish to try to turn those clocks back. Now, yes, last night we all would have loved an extra hour of sleep, right? That's not what Paul's talking about, though. I mean, going like back B.C., back to the old covenant, back to the days of Moses before the giving of the Spirit. But if you're a Christian, you may know that temptation, nonetheless, to go back. Maybe not consciously, but subconsciously. You know, the early church knew that temptation. So there was a, there was a, a writer, pastor, what we call sort of a church father named Cyprian, who, who often slipped. And he would speak of New Testament realities, but he would speak of them with sort of Old Testament images and pictures of sacrifice and of priesthood. And so all of a sudden, people would start to think of God's glory as residing in buildings and property and places and not in people, as Paul will talk about it to the Second Corinthians. Not in people and dwell by his spirit. And it's where we get this notion of church buildings as sort of temples or sacred spaces, right? Sanctuaries. That's, that's all old covenant language and imagery. It's not new covenant imagery. It's where we replace our notion of pastor with priest, as if we're back in the days of Moses and we need an intermediary offering sacrifices for us so we can be acceptable to God. You know, it's fascinating. I was reminded of this just a few months ago. I was with my son. He was at a swim meet, one of these three-day meets, and uh, it was down in North Dallas. And oh my word, do they know big pools, I guess they do everything big in Dallas, but big pools, glorious pools. And it reminded me of those glory days back in California, right, where people play real sports. You all wanted more water polo illustrations. There you go. All right. No, but I was sitting there at this meet, and word got out that I was some kind of a minister. And it was amazing. Multiple people on my son's team, whom I had met but not spent three days with like this, were coming up to me, they were offering their hand and asking me to give them a blessing. I didn't laugh. I mean, internally, though, I was surprised. But like some notion I was of a priestly class, like I had some unique access to God that they couldn't have. And of course, I was gracious with them and I prayed with them and said, you know what, we can actually pray together. We can do this together. I tried to help them see they don't need a priest. They don't need someone to be an intermediary between them and God. You know, friends, it's even how some will use, you know, some Christians very unwisely, some others will use the Exodus story today and, and make it all about class struggle. They'll make it all about liberation. Right? In the same way God liberated Israel from Egypt, so God is about liberating us from unjust oppression 
all very horizontal, very man-centered, nothing like the book of Exodus. It's in the way some of us just live with constant guilt, constant shame, shame over past sins. And so we keep going over and, and over our own forms of penance. We make sacrifices, so to speak, to God just like they would in the Old Covenant, thinking if we do this and we feel badly enough and offer enough petition and, and sacrifices to God, then maybe somehow that will like assuage God's displeasure and we forget those very clear words of Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's in the way many of us still seek to live according to the works of the flesh, we don't live by the strength of the Spirit, right? We look toward our own power, toward our own resources, as even as Mike was praying in that confession, our own self-sufficiency, right? We rely on that. It's my fight every week. You know, I'm preparing a sermon. I spend all this time in translation, and I'm like, where's my petition, right? Where, where am I praying for spiritual help, not just buried in Greek verbs? We see it in how we live anxious-ridden and agitated lives, right? We don't appeal to God. We don't beg and beseech God, but rather we busy ourselves and in thinking we'll better our lot that way, right? Sure, we'll pay lip service maybe to Christ saving me from my sin, right? But in this circumstance, right, today, yeah, that may be a truth somewhere, but today I must become my own savior. Friends, there's so many ways we just seek to turn those clocks back to look to the past, to treat them like glory days. And Paul's saying in the spirit, regardless of however it may look at present, our best days, our glory days, they are not behind us. Not at all behind us. In Christ, they're before us. And even now, we're experiencing and living them, the beginning, the first fruits of those glory days. And every day, we march yet one step closer to their final consummation. Friends, that's Paul's interpretation of things. But let's think for our second half on the application. The application of this, verses 12 to 18. And if that dominant idea in verses 7 to 11 was glory, the, the dominant idea here is that one of veil, where, Mo, where Paul introduces that. He mentions it four different times, this word veil, in 13, 14, 15, and verse 16. But just notice again, just notice how verse 12 opens. Since... Paul says, or as other translations, therefore. So Paul's saying, because all this is true, in verses 7 to 11, right, because we live under a better covenant with better promises, offering better glory, right, he says, having such a hope, verse 12. Now these, Paul says, are the implications. These are the applications for our lives. And to be clear, when Paul speaks of hope there in verse 12, hope in the scriptures, that's not just wishful thinking. That's not just empty optimism that things will get better. No, hope in the Bible is the certain confidence that is grounded in the character of God and in the perfect record of his faithful conduct toward his people. So in that sense, hope in the Bible is something you can take to the bank, be confident of. And that first application of all that's been argued thus far Paul says is that we must first behave boldly, he says. We must behave boldly, right? Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 
Not, he'll say, like Moses, who's going to have to veil himself, shroud himself. Even Moses has to withdraw himself from the people lest they perish. No, Paul's saying not like that, but we must be bold. And the we there is really referring to Paul and some of the co-workers there with him in Corinth. Would have been guys like Titus. And yet, the implications, as we'll see, of their ministry has direct implications for our own ministry. There are ways in which we're called to be bold, just like Paul is being called to be bold. But what is this boldness, right? What is he specifically referencing? I think in part, Paul's defending his behavior amongst them. So later in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, he'll say, I'm acting with great boldness. Same word as he uses here, great boldness toward you. Great boldness. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 1, I am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. So we, we keep seeing Paul defend his boldness to the Corinthians. And remember, in this section of 2.14 to 7.4, Paul's basically on trial, and he's having to defend his own integrity and ministry, which he shouldn't have to do at this point, but he's having to do again because of these false teachers. He's having to defend it. And the Corinthians, right, remember they were ambitious They valued status, valued reputation. So they wouldn't have taken kindly to Paul's public critiques. That would have grated against them, which is why some are undermining him. And that word for bold in verse 12 was often used of personal candor, of frankness. So when Paul says being very bold amongst them, he's speaking to how he has not minced words with them but he has been direct and clear with them. You know, friends, in the Bible, that right there, that kind of frankness and candor, that's actually characteristic of true biblical friendship. True true friends don't flatter. They don't flatter. Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. As in an enemy multiplies kisses. But the wounds of a friend, when necessary, those are faithful. Those are trustworthy, as other translations will say. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Frankness is key to any true, meaningful friendship. And Paul's saying that's how he's loved the Corinthians. Friends, that's how you also are to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Great encouragement? Yes. Encouragement always ought to be the dominant mark of our friendships with others, right? That ought to be the thing that we think of primarily, but as well a willingness when necessary to lean in, to have that awkward conversation. That's how we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, that's how your pastors seek to love you and ought to love you. You know, sometimes we will tell you things you don't want to hear because we trust there are things that you need to hear. Friends, what Paul lacked in charisma that they mocked him for, what he lacked in charisma, he made up for in candor. Friends, that's what you should want from your pastors too. It's a good way to pray for us as your elders. You know, just to be clear, none of your elders delight in saying the difficult thing. That's not a joy we have with you. But sometimes we know it's the necessary thing. So just pray that we'd have boldness to know when to speak frankly and with such candor to you, to those whom we love. But I also think Paul's referencing 
not just his frankness and candor with them, and that way he's been bold, but he's also referencing just his bold preaching of the gospel among the Corinthians. And Paul's saying he could behave boldly among them. He could share the gospel because he knows God's glory will not remain veiled. You know, unlike the days of Moses, verse 13, who would have to put a veil over his face so the Israelites would not gaze at him, right? That, is, that veil in Exodus 34, remember, that veil of Moses was for their protection. You know, he's saying that, that marked Moses' ministry. And, and we have a sense of this, you know, if you, just to take another 80s reference, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember how, how that film ends? When there's that sinister German soldier, right, with those circular glasses, and he opens up the ark, right, and whatever is to represent sort of the presence of God comes flying out, and faces melt, and somehow Indiana Jones, just by closing his eyes, survives, but whatever. You know, Spielberg doesn't get it all quite right, but you get the basic point. You get the basic point. We cannot stand in the presence of God, not in our sin. It's a reminder, right? We just don't waltz our way into God's presence because, as we thought about earlier, nothing casual, nothing blasé about God, nothing nonchalant about him. You know, if you know the, if you remember the famous words of Mr. Beaver from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, God is good, but he isn't safe. There is nothing safe about sinners before this holy God. It's why we read in Hebrews it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I mean, that would be like deciding you're going to go to academy sports and you're going to get one of those little cheap rubber dinghies and you're going to grab a plastic paddle from a kiddie pool and you're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to row out into a hurricane and I think I'm going to survive. And yet that's how some of us paddle our way through life, thinking we'll do that and somehow in the presence of a holy God we'll make it. Well, Moses and Paul are trying to help us see that that veil was for the people's protection. It was a reminder both of their sinfulness and God's holiness. That veil was a sign both of judgment and of God's mercy. And Paul says the problem with the people of Israel, verse 14, was that their minds were hardened. Not, as some translations say, that they were dull, as in they lacked understanding. You know, if you know the story of Israel, you know the fundamental problem with the people of Israel was not a failure to understand or comprehend the law. The words God gave them were perfectly clear. The problem is they didn't want to obey those words. It wasn't an intellectual deficiency of Israel. It was a moral deficiency within Israel. And friends, it's the same way, if we're honest, it's the same way with us. Our problems with God, our problems with the Bible, we may say they're fundamentally intellectual, and there are some legitimate intellectual issues we can talk about with the Bible, but when it comes right down to it, deep down for most of us, the intellectual becomes just an escape and an excuse to not have to weigh the moral consequences of what the Bible has to say about us. It's not finally that we find the Bible intellectually untenable. It's that we find it morally untenable. We don't want to submit ourselves to God. We don't want to be accountable to God. We don't want to have to ask for forgiveness. We don't want to have to change our behavior. Because then we'd have to admit that we're not God. 
And we'd have to let God be God. And that's what we don't like doing. And that's just the way it was with Israel. Which is why Paul says their minds were hardened. Notice that passive verb. Little things like that. Their minds were hardened. Who's doing the hardening? It's God. It's a judicial hardening. He's the one doing it. In other words, for Israel's stubborn refusal to turn to the Lord, God's ultimate judgment was to harden their hearts so they wouldn't and indeed couldn't return to the Lord. You can look at Isaiah 6. You can look at some of the parables of Jesus. Highlight these very same things. Yes, for some, right, that right there, that God would harden in that way, that grates against whatever notions of free will we have. The idea that at the, end of the, at the end of the day, we are ultimately autonomous creatures, that our wills finally are sovereign. And if that makes you feel good this morning, you can keep believing that. Just know that is nowhere taught in the Bible. God is sovereign even over the human heart. He is sovereign even over our wills. Friends, that's one of the reasons why when we feel conviction of sin, we don't want to ignore it. We don't want to push it back. We want to respond to it, to let our hearts be softened to that conviction and not hardened by running from it. Friend, if you are feeling conviction of sin this morning, that is God's gift to you. You do not want to strike that gift, ignore that gift, reject that gift. Let your heart be hardened by, by your own rejection. You want to turn and respond to that conviction. right? You want to turn before it is too late. And I don't just mean turn before it's too late in the sense that you lose a friendship or you lose a liver or you lose some brain cells or you lose a marriage. I mean too late for you because you've lost your soul. That's what's at stake. Yet through Christ, Paul says, right, only through Christ, that veil, as in that hardness of heart, can be taken away. Verse 14. And that's where Paul flips, and that image of the veil now becomes a picture of the hardened heart toward God. And Paul says that that hardened heart can be removed, can be unveiled through Christ's work. Only Christ, and remember who's saying this. Remember Paul and the hardness of his own heart and the blindness of his own eyes. He uses this picture of our hard-heartedness toward God and how Christ can remove it, how he can penetrate the blindness of our eyes and the hardness of our hearts. And through the Spirit, he can give us new eyes to see and softened hearts to understand and respond to God. And that's what Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. Friends, that's what we were celebrating earlier in those three baptismal testimonies of Wesley and Kendra and Olivia. Friend, it's why if you're here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, notice what Paul's saying. The only hope for that hardened heart is Christ. It's the only one. It's not your works. It's not your will. It's not your intellect. It's not the accomplishments you have, and they may be many, 
None of those things will help you when you one day stand before a holy God. Only Christ, Paul says, can help you in that moment. For only Christ lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live in our sin. And only he died that sacrificial death that you and I all ought to have died in our sin. And that only he rose from the dead, victorious over death and sin. Only Christ did all of that so that all who would repent of their sin and and look to Christ and turn to Christ, they can be saved. That veil, Paul says, can be removed and we can behold Christ and his glory for all whom he is. And Paul says that's where freedom is found. Not of being slaves to our sin, but that's where freedom is found, verse 17. Right? Freedom from the law's condemnation, from the condemnation of our own conscience. That's freedom to no longer be a slave to sin. Freedom to obey God, as many of us on the men's retreat were thinking about. Freedom to obey God, right? Not because we have to, but because we get to. Right? Not out of duty, but out of delight. And Paul says he behaved boldly in the preaching of that gospel, and by implication, so can we. We can be bold. We can here in our own evangelism. Because for some, we have that promise that God, if we know our own story, he, he lifts that veil, that veil of unbelief. And it's not by our own persuasion, right? It's by the Spirit's power that happens. Which brings us to that second and final application there in verse 18. Yes, we're to behave boldly, knowing that God lifts that veil and he saves. But secondly, we are also to be transformed gloriously. We're to be transformed gloriously because in Christ, we don't need that veil. Like Moses, we can go before God unveiled, beholding his glory. That's the argument Paul's making. Paul's saying if Christ has carried our sins on the cross, if he has borne them for us, then we all, he says, notice, as in every Christian, can now, he says, what with unveiled faces, by beholding the glory of the Lord, be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So Paul's saying just what was reserved for Moses, right? That kind of transformation that Moses experienced by implication there in Sinai through the Spirit, that, Paul says, now it, right, it's available to every Christian. They can have that experience in Christ by the Spirit. And notice Paul doesn't say that that can happen to Christians. He doesn't say that it should mostly, usually happen to Christians. He says that's what does happen to Christians, He says we all are being transformed. It's not merely a possibility, but it is a definitive reality in the Christian's life. And notice again the passive. Who's behind this transformation? God is at work in the lives of his children. He is transforming, right? What we have wrecked and ruined through sin, that's what God is renewing and restoring through his spirit. And so here's Paul's upshot, right? Genuine Christians, yeah, they live changed lives. We keep coming back to this in 2 Corinthians. Genuine Christians lived changed lives. Which means if you claim Christ, but there is no true change in your life, there's no Christ in your life. And it's what Wesley and Kendra, it's what they shared, right? 
made some professions of faith, but there was no genuine change because they didn't genuinely know Christ and they weren't genuinely trusting in Christ. Because genuine Christians live changed lives. Over time, they will be transformed. Not all at once. It's often slowly, it's gradually, sometimes imperceptibly, like barely noticeable. But we do change as Christians. The proof of our own salvation is not finally in decision cards. It's not in church attendance. It's not about prayers. Even as you heard earlier in those testimonies, it's not about prayers we once prayed. But it's what Christ is doing in you today. That's the proof. Recognize that's exactly why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves in the present. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Because the proof of our salvation is in our present transformation. That's the proof of our salvation. It is our present transformation of being made in this same image and likeness. Right? By beholding him, we become like him, is what Paul's saying. We behold his glory, and so we're transformed into that glory. Now, that doesn't mean, Paul says, that we should expect visions and, and dreams. It doesn't mean we should pursue our own mountaintop experiences like Moses had. It's not saying God can't do them, right? I have no interest in saying what God won't do. But you shouldn't expect them. No, we behold God, Paul says, by beholding Christ. In other words, the best way to behold God, the best way, if you will, to experience God is to meet, if you want to meet with God and experience him, and if you want to have God in some way speak with you as it will, it is to behold him in the person of Jesus Christ as he's laid out to us in the scriptures. Right? That's where we go. We behold God by beholding him in Christ. So when we go to the scriptures, we don't open them merely so that they be a mirror of us. We don't go to the scriptures to behold us and to encounter us and to discover the best version of us, per se. That's not finally why we go. We, we behold and encounter God through Christ as he's revealed to us in his word. And friends, that's exactly where Paul's going to go in chapter 4. So with that in mind, I will ask you again. Right, go back to Bruce Springsteen, if you will. Go back to those glory days. And have they passed you by? You tempted to think that way, I wonder. Do you feel like that's all that's left, right? To ruefully reminisce over what has passed, what once was. Friends, Paul, recognize what he's saying. He's saying, these are the glory days. We are living in those days. The last days where God's glory is being poured out through his spirit such that we can behave boldly, knowing God lifts that veil, and we can also be transformed gloriously because we don't need that veil in Christ. We can behold God beautifully and wonderfully in Christ. And friends, that is exactly what we're about to celebrate in these baptisms. Proof right now in the lives of these three that God is still about this very work of removing veils and transforming souls. So I ask you again, are your glory days behind you? 
or in Christ will your best days, will those glory days, will they not lie behind you, but friend, will they lie before you? And will you begin to experience them even now? Friend, will that describe you? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we behold Christ in it and your glory and your holiness, Lord, in all of these things, give us, even as Kevin prayed, give us humble hearts to receive that teaching and truth and to submit ourselves to it, knowing you are good and glorious and never fail your people. In Jesus' name, amen.